Hello, friends, and welcome to the Gospel Beautiful Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Chan. Today's conversation is with my good friend and colleague, Cameron Howard. Cameron is Associate Professor of Old Testament here uh, at Luther Seminary, uh, where we are both colleagues. And Cameron has uh, has an upcoming book. It's available for pre-order now, should be um, shipping within the next few days. Uh, titled The Old Testament for a Complex World, How the Bible's Dynamic Testimony Points to New Life for the Church. It's obviously a book that uh, focuses on both the Old Testament and also um, uh, contemporary issues today. It's really, really interesting, I think, especially for those of you who are um, uh, leaders within congregations or within other kinds of faith communities, you will appreciate the way that uh, that Cameron bridges kind of at the world of academic biblical scholarship, which often says, you know, somewhat insular and, and kind of stays in its own corner. And the way she bridges that with um, the life of the church in some really, really concrete ways. And so this is a very accessible book uh, being published by Baker, and uh, it will be available to ship within just a few days of, uh, of this podcast dropping. So definitely something to check out. In, in terms of Cameron's other, other pop, uh, uh, publications, you'll find her work kind of all over the place, especially on uh, in places like Working Preacher or... Uh, on the Faith Lead platform, Luther Seminary's Faith Lead platform, you'll also find uh, she has a great chapter on First and Second Kings in the Women's Bible Commentary. That's the updated version from 2012, published by Westminster. So you'll you'll find Cameron published in a lot of different places, um, but I do especially recommend. Uh, that chapter she has on Kings, one and two Kings in the uh, women's Bible commentary. It's really, really nicely done. So um, other than that, uh, thank you all for the kind of conversation that I've been able to have with a lot of you over email. I always appreciate the feedback and the opportunity to hear from you. Um, Also, I really appreciate when you suggest uh, interviewees or interview subjects. I've got a couple invites out there that I'm working with right now, some people that I'm trying to get into the podcast that I think you all will find uh, to be really interesting and to kind of provide a different angle than our kind of normal, uh, normal a slate of guests. So lots of interesting stuff coming up. Uh, do make sure to write me, make sure to stay in touch and let me know kind of uh, how, you rece- how you're receiving the show, what's helpful, what isn't helpful, all the normal stuff. So we're going to hear now a few words from our sponsors, and then we'll jump right into the conversation with Cameron Howard. Thanks. Baker Academics serves the academy and the church by publishing works that further the pursuit of knowledge and understanding within the context of Christian faith. They connect authors and readers across the broader academic community by publishing books that reflect historic Christianity and its contemporary expressions. Baker Academic authors are scholars who are leaders in their fields, write ironically, and display a healthy respect for other perspectives and traditions. Baker Academic is a proud sponsor of the Gospel Beautiful podcast. Thank you for listening. Hey there, Gospel Beautiful Podcast listeners. This is Brian Schrader, creator of Worship Forward, a resource for progressive, innovative worship leaders. Here you'll find conversations about arranging hymns for your worship band, using song lyrics that promote justice, and how to choose great worship songs to use at your church. Check it out at worshipforward.blog. Cameron Howard, thanks for joining me today. I'm glad to be here. I know exactly what you wanted this morning was to have another Zoom-like call with one of your colleagues, but (laughs) I appreciate that you're willing to do it. Oh, I'm glad to do it. And we probably don't have too many Zoom calls left, so that's all right. (laughs) Thank God for that. Well, Cameron, first off, congratulations on the book, uh, The Old Testament for a Complex World, which is uh, going to be shipping shortly. Congratulations on it, and it must be uh, nice to have that project out of the way. Thanks. It is. It's nice to see it all finished up. Definitely. And it's published with Baker and will be live uh, within just a few days, or you can pre-order it now, but it will also be shipping uh, uh, through Amazon in just a couple of days. This is a project I understand that you've been working on for a good couple of years. Uh, I think it was your sabbatical project as well. So talk just a bit about just sort of the the, um, the birth of this project. How did this, how did this come about? Uh, how did you become interested in, in this topic? 
Well, I actually started thinking about this book, or at least the ideas in it. Back in 2013, I was asked to do a workshop at the Celebration of Biblical Preaching at Luther Seminary, our institution, and um, the the theme that year was Preaching at the Crossroads, and um, it was inviting us, I guess, to think about times of transition. And the more I thought about it, the more I thought, gosh, the Bible is just one big sort of ball of transitions. (laughs) That is, it is um, not so static or set uh, as we often think about it, but is itself a very dynamic text full of dynamic texts. So it has its sort of wholeness as the canon, but then also all these smaller pieces, um, to reckon with, and that that it can be a great guide for us anytime we are in times of transition, not just because of what it says about transition, but because it sort of embodies, if a book can be said to embody, uh, it, it lives out or reflects the living out of transition in the, its very composition. So Cameron, let's start with a buzzword that doesn't, it doesn't quite make it into the title, but it's definitely all over the book, and that's the term innovation. Mm -hmm. And this is, of course, a topic that uh, as an institution and as a church, you know, has has come up in quite a few different places. But when I think of innovation, so, and I think when many people do, they think of, you know, cities like, or places like Silicon Valley or Berlin or Tel Aviv. But when Cameron Howard thinks of innovation, she thinks of the Old Testament. So what is going on with you? Right. <laughs> well, I love the Old Testament. So, uh, of course, it's my answer to every question. But um, I do think that, um, first of all, you know, we say Old Testament, uh, which is a problem. It already sort of sets our minds on thinking about it as something past and done and old. Um, So, you know, some folks prefer to say First Testament um, or, of course, Hebrew Bible. But um, uh, even though it is set and was composed a long time ago, to be sure, it is a collection of ancient texts, um, they reflect lots of different times when a faith community was faced with some sort of crisis or moment of transition and had to rethink, innovate uh, about what it meant to be that faith community, how to be in faithful relationship with God and with each other. And so um, it's kind of a treasure trove in that way of of innovation, kind of a, a historical timeline of many different moments of innovation. It's it's so true and, and so interesting and and those there there do seem to be kind of particular moments within <clears throat> within uh, Israel's history when this kind of innovative work really comes to the fore. You spend a lot of time in your book talking about kind of the exilic period, the the New Babylonian period, the Persian period. Are there kind of other times in Israel Israel's history that? that also sort of provoked this kind of, and I know it's hard, right? The difficult part is always sort of identifying texts with times, and I get that. But from like your perspective, are there other events that provoked like exceptional creativity or innovation in Israel's history? Um, When it comes to timeline, I do think about the exile and the post-exilic period as the kind of standout time, certainly in terms of the literary tradition, that's when it was at its most productive, as as best we can tell. Um, But I think from, uh, we can look at any text from any time period and see the way that it's working in conversation with other texts, either within the tradition or from the surrounding cultures. So, So in addition to sort of pointing to that historical era, I would also look at um, the literary tradition itself. So an example I use in the book is um, the Jewish court story, Um, that that is a sort of, uh, it seems to have been a popular genre that got reworked, yes, probably in the post-exilic period, but simply also sort of what does it mean to take existing ideas and use that 
those cultural tropes or those cultural motifs and deploy them to tell a particular story for this particular people. It happens also with um, the creation stories. You know, we make a lot about how um, they are dependent to some degree on existing ancient Near Eastern motifs from myths and epics, uh, um, and yet they are telling a new story. And so uh, the Bible in its literary tradition is sort of continually harnessing um, existing literary material and redeploying it to do something new. Yeah, no, and, and you're, I, I think this is right. You In the book, you point to a couple of other uh, kind of moments you talk about Antiochus, the the reign of Antiochus in the second century, and we'll kind of come to that, especially in the apocalypse when we talk about apocalypses. But I also think another one that you kind of brush up against is the Josianic reforms, um, it, it, especially when you kind of think about uh, like Bernie Levinson's work on legal innovation. So when you think about the the kind of centralization of worship, what this does to things like Passover, that's not so much a like crisis of having been defeated and deported, but it's more of kind of the way that state policy actually comes to impact these texts that we now call exactly. Holy Scripture. Exactly. And that there are different groups or different people who have different ideas about how to do holiness and that that holiness is never separate from the kind of political and cultural considerations um, that impact any era, any nation in any era. I mean, uh, you know, I think we as Christians, we love to talk about being in the world, but not of the world, right? But I think sometimes we don't recognize just how in the world we are, <laughs> that the way that we develop our um, interpretations of our sacred texts and the way that we develop our religious ideas is always impacted by the cultures in which we live and the way that history has played out. And also, so instead of sort of trying to run from that, um, my hope is that we sort of lean into it, just notice it, um, acknowledge it, embrace it, and see that, that that is also a biblical idea, that that was going on in the development of our sacred texts and in their early interpretations as well. You know, one of the things I appreciate about this book and, and just about you as a, as a teacher and a colleague is that I think diversity within the canon um, which we've is sort of throughout the entire book. In fact, it's one of like the major points is <laughs> to lift up the kind of diversity within the canon around different issues, everything from priesthood, you know, who gets to be a priest to um, who belongs in this community, <laughs> thinking Ruth, Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, all these kind of diverse voices around really contentious and very important issues. Um, I think there is a, a tendency in many religious circles to look at diversity within something like a canon and to see that as a liability and as something that is potentially threatening to faith or at least something that needs to be kind of negotiated on pins and needles. But you lean into it fully and embrace it fully and actually make it part of a theology of scripture, which I really appreciate. So I just wonder if you could kind of reflect a bit on why you lean so heavily into uh, uh, into the diversity of Scripture and why you think it should be um, kind of at the center of how we think about God's work through Scripture. I think it's an honest evaluation of what is in Scripture, that it's very diverse. I mean, we, we avoid the word contradiction, and I like to avoid that too, because I think it assumes that every text is asking the same question, and then if it gives different answers, that would be a contradiction. I think it's much more of a, a conversation. That's a great point. Um, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a back and forth. It's an exchange of dissonant sometimes ideas about um, a lot of different questions. And so I think just acknowledging that and not being afraid of it um, is, is fine. And I think that what critical biblical scholarship, so critical in the sense of academic um, biblical scholarship offers us is not a contradiction to 
um, our deeply held um, convictions about the authority of Scripture, but rather an opportunity to understand better what Scripture is. Um, as a person of faith, I do come to Scripture with a sense that it is in some way authoritative. You know, I acknowledge it as um, part of my faith tradition, a fundamental part of my faith tradition. And so therefore, I want to know all that I can about it and how it came to be and what questions it was interested in, um, what the pressures were on the people who were writing it, um, and that that is a way to ask more and better faithful questions and not to sort of be an attack um, on our sense of, of scripture. Cameron, so I really appreciate so much the way that you lift up the diversity of the canon. And I'm just wondering, what are the, what are the consequences for the life of the church if we choose not to recognize or acknowledge the kind of diversity within the canon? Well, I think there are a couple of implications. Um, one of them is just that when, you know, we encourage people as Christian public leaders, we encourage people to read the Bible more. Um, but then when they do, <laughs> they're going to find a lot of things in there that they maybe didn't know were there. Um, they might hear uh, troubling stories or um, not know sort of what to do with this great diversity of ideas in scripture. And so I think if we try to sort of shut down the questions and say, well, this is what you need to know. This is just, this is all there is. Don't worry about the rest of it. Um, I think that creates very brittle faith. And I think um, the church, um, certainly the mainline churches starts uh, currently suffering the consequences of, of, poorly formed, brittle faith sort of over the generations. Um, uh, we have failed in many ways to make um, scripture and faith relevant to the daily life of, of every Christian. And I, I think, I think we see the church die. I mean, there are a lot of reasons um, for that, of course, but I think, I do think that that's a factor, this kind of um, failure to engage deeply and honestly with the totality of scripture. Um, but there's also the consequence that when someone really uh, decides that they have figured it all out, um, that they know the exact correct meaning of Scripture and therefore maybe even the mind of God, that is when um, abuse and harm with Scripture begin to occur. And so I think... Um, Part of what the church has got to do is be open to um, understanding different interpretations and not uh, not failing to hear how any particular interpretation may be causing harm to other people. Um, so yeah, I think I think just leaning into this diversity is is also I think it's just a really joyful and fun thing to do. I mean, you discover parts of scripture, things about scripture that you maybe never have paid attention to um, before. I think we we shouldn't be intimidated by it, but to just um, to try to to have fun to approach scripture with a sense of um, wonder and play. Oh, I love that that image of wonder and play, and and uh, I, I also appreciate the metaphor that you use in the book, which really kind of emerges from atomic science, right? Maybe let me sure. offer just a quote here, and then I want to hear you spin this out. A quote, in this uh, analogy, uh, readers and texts are both atomic partic particles, uh, participles have been... <laughs> I'm getting ready to teach you, Bruggen. Um, readers and texts are both atomic particles. Like a solar wind, the Holy Spirit energizes the encounter between text and reader. Every encounter thus has the potential to form new molecules of interpretation, releasing energy as light and as beauty. And so talk about this image, which really does uh, animate and, and kind of center um, your reflections on interpretation in the book. Well, as a teacher, I... I teach exegesis a lot, um, exegesis of the Hebrew Bible, and think about that as a leading out, right, or drawing out, just sort of in the most literal sense, which has 
become for me sometimes um, a metaphor of excavation. So I'll say to students that you, know, you want to dig into the text and pull out data so that you can build your argument about the text. And I just find that um, that what is implicit in there is the idea that there's this single core meaning that we, if we just dig far enough or use the right tools to get to, then we will have the right answer. But the dynamic nature of Scripture, the diverse nature of Scripture, um, and of course, all that we know about interpretation and the way that we uh, bring our own identities and experiences to interpretation suggests that there is no such thing as the one right way to read the text. And so I was looking for a metaphor that would encompass that dynamism more. And so it was, um, it was atomic collision. But then once I started researching, you know, what does that mean, atomic collision? <laughs> what do you get? You know, I had to turn to friends to help me um, resuscitate some of my physics from high school. Um, but uh, it, what I like about the metaphor, well, a couple of things. One is um, it acknowledges dynamism in both the reader and the text. So we are all right in different parts of uh, or different moments in our lives, in different situations. We're going to come to scripture with uh, with different questions, different expectations, and we can read the same text, um, you know, over and over and come up with something different in our understanding of it every time. But it also emphasizes the kind of uh, being in motion of the text itself. That is, um, th that the text itself is not, it's not flat, it's not static, it's not a sort of single um, narrative, that it's full of poetry, it's full of law, it's full of um, lots of different genres, it emerges from lots of different moments in history, it is um, composed by many different hands. And so um, the atomic um, collision metaphor, I think, uh, captures that dynamism in, to some degree. Um, and what I didn't actually say in the book, but in, in talking about this metaphor since then, um, have come to want to articulate is that those atomic collisions can generate light and beauty, but they can also be destructive, right? You can get a nuclear reaction that is an atomic bomb, or you can get a nuclear reaction that's the Northern Lights, or, you know, that, that you can, um, uh, you, that, that there's no one direction that this um, encounter between text and reader is going to go. Oh, it's so generative, Cameron. I, I plan on using it myself with attribution, of oh, course. Well, that's <laughs> nice <no>. to hear. <laughs> well, no, it's it's true. And part of what I appreciate about the image, too, is all the potentiality, right? Like you, there's potential for destruction. There's potential for incredible beauty. Um, and I also appreciate the way that the, the metaphor kind of captures that there can be oppositional forces, too, that when we sort of when we read the text, sometimes there's repelling, you know, sometimes we repel against it or, or we have these kind of oppositional relationships to it. And that kind of leads me to um, another question I have about some of the texts that you chose. And so you are somebody who does not hesitate to engage really difficult texts like Ezekiel, um, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah. And these are all texts that have, are not just like, um, things you look at askance, but have, you know, depictions, uh, especially of violence against women that are repugnant, right? Like if they were, mm -hmm. if it were sort of proposed today as a kind of modern text, people would, you know, rightfully be uh, not, would, would be very upset by it. But you, right. you engage those texts, but with, with both generosity and critique, I, I get the sense So talk to us in your, to, to kind of share in your own mind how you approach texts like that and how you think about them uh, kind of within the life of the church. Yeah, um, that's a that's a great question, because as you know, as Old Testament scholars, we have to reckon with some very difficult texts. And 
Um, truth be told, I do avoid Ezekiel a lot in my teaching, as my students will say when I teach prophets and poetry. Uh, you know, let's do other prophets, but <laughs> I get it. Nonetheless, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> um, uh, so the first thing I think we have to do is when we read these texts to to name the things that are repugnant about them and that are troubling and to just be willing to say that. And um, even if even if a text is a metaphor, right, even if in the prophetic literature we get this metaphor of the abusive spouse or um uh, shame, uh, shaming, sexual shaming of women and sexual violence against women, even if it's quote unquote, just a metaphor, all of those metaphors reflect to some degree, the lived experiences of real women. Um, there might not be one woman whose story is behind a particular metaphor, but those things happen to women in the name of religion. Um, have throughout history. So we just, we have to name that. And I think have to say, um, when I'm reading, I don't want to perpetuate an interpretation that will continue to do violence against women. Um, so, so I, that's part of my hermeneutic. I come to it saying, I, I, um, I'm not going to read this text, uh, in a way, or I'm going to try not to read this text in a way that dehumanizes. Um, that's just something I'm not going to do. Just because it's in scripture um, doesn't mean that I'm going to endorse violence against women. That's just period. And um, I think sometimes you just you just have to be honest about that and, and name it. Um, and so then I think we can engage the text further. The other stuff, there's, there's a lot going on in Ezekiel, for example, um, in addition to these terrible um, metaphors, um, engage the text in ways that are not excusing it or saying, oh, you know, Ezekiel, he thought like this because it was a different time, or he thought like this because he was under this traumatic experience, though he was, um, um, experiencing trauma himself. But we can say, okay, I name that and I see that. What else do I see in this text? And I think um, in, I think if we are taking this kind of hermeneutic of dynamism, then we are better able to understand that there are things that we would pick up from a biblical text and things that we would put down. Um, uh, things we want to engage and understand and things that we um, want to say, no, I, I can't, I'm not going to repeat that. Um, I'm not going to repeat Ezekiel 23 in the house of worship. You know, I would just, um, sure. and I think that that's okay. I think that if we can cultivate ways of reading that say, yes, there's objectionable stuff. Yes, there is, um, some lovely stuff. This, this is the text that we have inherited. It's not going away anytime soon. Um, and I believe that, um, we can read with the Holy Spirit that and I talk about in the book, the Holy Spirit is a kind of energizing force for this reading that, um, if we are reading in a way that is, um, attempting to discern, attempting to be, um, open to the spirit, then we can still um, learn and grow in our faith from uh, these books. But I'm not, I, I'm not going to say that everybody's got to learn something from Ezekiel 16, because maybe you just learn that violence against women has been an animating metaphor for a long, long time. And mm -hmm. I'm not gonna that question. That. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Sorry to interrupt. Okay. That question you just raised uh, what else do I see is a really interesting question, I think, especially when coming to text. It's, it's, it's very invitational, but it also recognizes kind of the limits of a person's perspective and how it kind of, you know, how our kind of life and experiences create a horizon of meaning, but there are other horizons, right, <laughs> against which one can read. And so I, I appreciate that question. Um, you know, it strikes me as I hear you reflect on books like Ezekiel and we could bring in Hosea and many, many others that I, I think Old Testament uh, kind of students are really well positioned in the current moment when 
we're thinking so much about how to interact with our own history. Mm. Uh, I'm thinking here about kind of national history and this sort of prolonged conversation about, you know, when does American history begin? What do we do about these like really ugly and problematic elements of our past? You're from the South. And so there's a particular kind of resonance with, you know, the history of the South as well. And, and it just makes me wonder if kind of training in Old Testament and training in how to think critically about the Bible actually equips one to think about some of these really complicated uh, cultural questions that we're facing in the current moment. What, what do you think? Yeah, I, I hope so. I mean, I think that we can learn for, for one thing that different people tell the stories of history in different ways, depending on um, where they found themselves in the history. Um, that's part of that dynamism we mentioned earlier. I think of the the Deuteronomistic history, Joshua Judges, Samuel and Kings, and um, what does it mean to try to tell the story um, of monarchy from a position of exile or defeat or um, longing, right? And, and does that change how you tell? I mean, in my classes, we often talk about just Joshua and the conquest stories. And we know that, um, you know, the conquest stories have this very um, uh, just sort of extreme kind of almost like a bloodlust, you know, kill everything that breathes. And yet we know that the conquest, we know archaeologically, as well as from other places within scripture itself, that the the entrance into Canaan didn't happen that way. Um, that it did, that the textual telling um, with all of its violence does not line exactly. Um, you know, we can debate to, to what degree, but it doesn't line up um, with with the reality of how Israel came to be in Canaan. And so um, then the next question my students ask is, why tell the story that way? Right? Why tell the story that way? Well, then we have to look at, well, when was the story told? And would it, would it sound differently if you were telling it in the, um, you know, the sixth century from exile than in the fifth or fourth when you're living uh, under Persian rule, but in your land, you know, out of the land or in the land, diaspora or um, at home, so to speak. You know, there are all kinds of different factors that can influence why you might tell a story in a particular way. And so I think if we can take those same kind of frameworks, just that, that those kinds of questions why are we telling this story this way? Why did my eighth grade Mississippi history textbook tell the story this way? And what's different about the telling of the story now um, of the history of Mississippi or pick your, you know, pick your, your topic. Um, I, I think, I think that requires um, a kind of generosity um, an openness to, to the, the, the traumas that people have experienced, um, both both people who um, have had power and people who have not had power, um, not without not sort of erasing, but by no means sort of flattening that kind of um, imbalance of power. But I think that we can create empathy for each other and. Um, broaden our possibilities for conversations if we can ask why tell the story this way why tell the story this way and that that maybe maybe that gives us some avenues for conversation <laughs> it's such a great question to pose why why tell the story in this way and when was the story told in this way i think that that stuff does matter or in if you consider sort of the history of uh, interpretation or the yeah, the history of consequences, whatever language you want to use. Um, why was the story retold right. this way or picked up in this particular yes. way? And right. Uh, that the, the sort of there, the kind of core, um, I don't know if we'd call it, you know, the core source material. This is what redaction critics um, and text critics alike in biblical studies tend to try to get back to like, sort of unearth what is that um, original text was that original line um, of, of narrative or something like that and I 
you know, um, I don't know that we can get back to that. So what if instead of trying to get to um, the original of the Bible, we just sort of acknowledge that we have these differing um, ideas within it? So the book is is really structured around three kind of modes of innovation, at least the core chapters. So you have adapting popular culture, a rethinking theological assumptions, and then developing a new genre. Can you, I don't need you to just like summarize all three of those chapters, but can you just explain what you mean by each of those categories and then maybe say something about why you chose those particular modes of innovation? Um, well, adapting popular culture is just to say that the the Bible did not appear ex nihilo, dropped from heaven um, just all of a sudden one day, but that um, the texts were created in conversation, immersed in larger cultures. And so that can mean, you know, the broader ancient Near East or Western Asia. It can mean um, Judah and Israel and Judah um, and sort of the larger political dynamics. But, but, um, Texts like people are immersed in many different kinds of cultures, and those cultures um, influence both the writing and the reading. And in particular, um, there are some, there were some ways of telling stories um, that were quite popular. This, you know, the ancient Near Eastern myths and epics have some some themes. You know, this primordial flood. Um, theme, um, the Jewish court stories about um, a Jew who finds herself or himself in the court of a foreign king and um, through some sort of supernatural gift or special favor is able to, um, you know, um, often save the lives of either themselves and their um, companions or the Jewish people as a whole. That, That this kind of um, story is told multiple times in the Bible and is also attested outside of Scripture. So we can see that Scripture has always been in conversation, um, not just with what it, with itself, <laughs> but also outside of itself. Um, when it comes to rethinking theological assumptions, um, this this I think is really really important for the church, which is constantly having to rethink its theological assumptions. Um, Part of what we've been talking about earlier, right? Who's been telling the story of the church? Whose stories haven't been told? Why has the story been told this way? And does our theology have something to do with that? Um, I think Ezekiel's a good example here because of Ezekiel, um, uh, you know, who comes from this priestly background where um, you know where God is. God can be found in the temple. And then what if there is no temple? What does that mean for the location of God? Can God be in Babylon with us? Um, that I think those, I think that's just an example within one book of this one um, prophet thinking through his theology and um, and sort of modeling that there is potential to, to change and to, to, to rethink what we've been thinking about God. And then finally, um, developing a new genre. That's where I point to apocalyptic literature in particular as a kind of um, just sort of new way of not just storytelling, but thinking about the geopolitical landscape um, and what makes that so odd for us today was also what made it so powerful in its day. Um, and that, that the Bible is not just one way of um, producing literature that talks about God, but actually came up with new ways, including, um, the, including the apocalypse. Yeah, I, I thought that these, each of these chapters were really fascinating studies, and um, the Ezekiel one is is particularly interesting. In part, I think because just Ezekiel doesn't get as much 
play within teaching and preaching as as other books and and in some reason in some cases that's really justified but it, it was just interesting to see you kind of reflect on these innovative theological changes that that uh, Ezekiel uh, kind of enacts i wonder are there any kind of modes of innovation that you considered mm-hmm. studying that didn't make it in the book but that you thought well i might have taken that up but i just for whatever reason right you have to stop somewhere (laughs) then you just didn't take it up let me think about that for a second (laughs) i don't have a rabbit in the hat by the way just to be clear there's no like hidden answer here i was just as i was reading through it i thought wow you know this frame of kind of thinking about innovative um changes within scripture there's probably an almost endless number of categories a person could draw on i just wondered what those might be yeah well i first of all i found myself surprised by the ones that i did choose because as i said i don't really like to work in ezekiel and i don't do all that much in terms of pentateuchal source criticism and um, the layers of legal development there um, in the Torah. And so uh, those surprised me, <laughs> first of all, where where I really um, love to look <laughs> is in Persian period texts, as well as doing literary readings of texts. And so I think there is a lot of... Um, there's a lot more literary development um, and literary dynamism that could be explored in this same way. Um, I'm thinking, for example, of um, of Jonah. I mean, Jonah is just a really remarkable book um, in Good terms point. of in yeah. terms of its final message. You know, and it ends with this rhetorical question, and also much cattle, and the. <laughs> This sort of open-ended question um, (laughs) and is related to the historical circumstance of Assyrian rule or Assyrian domination. Um, And I think that, that, that the question that has animated my work for ever since I was in graduate school is how do literary readings and historical readings intersect and inform one another. What can we know about reading synchronically? That is to say, reading the scripture in its final form. Um, can that tell us things about um, uh, about the historical questions should we, we should be asking? And do the historical questions we ask inform the literary insights that we have? And so I think there are just so many places that that um, relationship is alive in the Old Testament between history and literature. Um, and of course, uh, it, it, this and it's scripture, right? It's history and it's literature, and yet it's also scripture. So um, I am always reading. I mean, and this is really the, the, the thrust of the book, is that um, critical biblical scholarship matters for the church, that the church um, uh, can benefit from all of the learnings of critical biblical scholarship. And so I am always reading with that scripture hat, even as I'm reading with those other ones. So as when you mentioned Jonah, it made me think about to what degree you could think of like canonicity as a, as a kind of innovation. And, and I'm, part, of, part of what I have in mind is that I think the proximity of two books to one another can create certain kinds of conversation that the, you know, the authors and editors of these texts never imagined, right? You know, but, but I think, for instance, about like Jonah and Nahum in the Protestant ordering, these are separate, uh, separated by Micah. Um, there are some Septuagintal scrolls in which Jonah and Nahum are adjacent. They're neighboring books. And that becomes very interesting, right? And it creates a different kind of conversation because then you have these two books focused on a single city, Nineveh, but with very different, like, end games. <laughs> like, Nineveh ends up in a very different place in Jonah than it does in Nahum. And they're all kind of, they both sort of draw on that kind of uh, Israelite creed, as it were, God, gracious, compassionate, 
but they sort of take it in really different directions. They both end with questions. And so there's a, there's a sense in which proximity, like placing two books by one another, can be a kind of innovative move that creates different sorts of conversations. Yeah, well, that's a great insight. I, and I think um, that can be a great practice. I mean, this book is aimed at seminary students and trying to show how um, critical biblical scholarship matters for their work in the church. Um, but I think it, to help it matter, those kinds of practices would be really great in a congregation, um, not just in a seminary. You know, what would it mean to read? Well, this is, we do this more often perhaps, read Ezra Nehemiah next to Ruth instead of next to Chronicles or something. Which you do in the book, or you, right. you talk or, about that in the book. Um, right. Gosh, we could we could do this all day. Um, but, but to take, right. you know, what does it mean? Chronicles and Kings, right? Yeah. <laughs> or to read Lamentations against Genesis. So if you think about Genesis telling the beginnings of things and Lamentations as a moment frozen in time where those promises made in Genesis seem to be suspended or lost, what would it mean to read those next to each other? I like that practice, Michael. I'm going to do that some more. <laughs> yeah, keep keep doing it because it seems to be working for you in this book. Well, you actually just <laughs> perfectly set up the next question. So each of these uh, categories of innovation, I think, and I think you you go here in the book too, kind of uh, in, might lead us to certain kinds of practices within the church. And so maybe maybe choose one of your categories, pop culture, whatever it might be, and then reflect on how the biblical practices might encourage the church to engage in its own kind of contemporary practices. First, I want to emphasize, and I know I say this in the book, but I just want to emphasize it again, that I don't think that the Bible is a kind of easy one-to-one model or analogy for how to do innovation in the church. Um, I think that it's, um, but I think that studying the innovation in the Bible can ignite um, new ideas about how to innovate in the church. And so that the more deeply we understand scripture, um, and again, it's not just the words on the page of scripture, but the fact that within scripture and not just across the canon, but even in a single book or a single set of adjacent books, there can be very, very different ideas side by side. Um, that that totality of what we can know about the Bible um, should be what we consider when we consider scripture. So with that with that caveat, when we when we are studying scripture, um, where can our imagination begin to ignite in new ways? And so, um, right, well, I mean, like inventing new genres. Um, we've actually seen in the pandemic, um, the, you know, Zoom worship, I think, is a pretty new genre. <laughs> um, certainly, it's much more ubiquitous now than it was um, pre-pandemic. Uh, that there are ways of being together and ways of um, t telling the story of the faith, ways of um, testifying that uh, we don't even know what they are yet. <laughs> um, uh, and that to be open, to be open to newness, I think, is, is what I'm hoping for the church from this study, to be open to newness because the Bible itself reflects that openness, that it is a faithful posture. Um, and so for the church in terms of practices, um, I guess the practice I want to instill in us is reading the Bible more, but reading it not to get to What if we read the Bible and in the Bible study, we just decided we're not going to try to get to what this text means, but we're going to write down as a group 50 different questions in an hour that this text brings up for us or something like that, right? How, how do we move out of the kind of, um, I'm reading the Bible because I'm in this circumstance and I need to get from A to Z in, or X to Y in terms of this position or from, from here. I need to know this answer. But what does it mean to just sort of uh, live in 
the mystery of of scripture. That's where I think I would want to see some new practices. Yeah, that's that's really helpful. And it, at the end of the book, you you kind of move us in this direction of uh, I wouldn't say you say principles. Let's just use your language. Sorry. Um, and you offer uh, a number of principles like storytelling, recognizing and celebrating difference. Um, listening for new and previously unheard voices, embracing uncertainty, etc. Et and and I think that's it's a really nice way of kind of synthesizing um, some of the learning that that you, uh, you you gain from from your study. I wonder as you look at that list that you've created, what which of those principles do you think is most difficult? for local, maybe for the local congregations that you're most familiar with, which one do you think might be the hardest to embrace? And why? And, and then I have oh, to ask the why. So. Um, embrace, embrace uncertainty without a question. Embrace uncertainty. Um, because I think that we do come to church for comfort and answers and that's not a bad thing. <laughs> I'm not trying to run that down, but um, but I think that scripture, uh, reading scripture in its fullness, does require us to acknowledge that there is so much about who God is, the totality, the fullness of who God is, that we do not know uh, and do not understand. And that there's so much about, about scripture and what we really should be doing with it that we just, we cannot be sure of. And um, I don't like those kinds of uncomfortable, uncertain spaces. Um, and so I imagine most people uh, also don't like that. And it's, and it's hard to lead, I think. Um, I think it takes really talented leadership, really um, uh, a lot of hard work. In leadership to be able to say, we're going to step into this space of unknowing and uncertainty, and um, we're going to trust that, you know, uh, God is present and faithful with us. And yet, who is this God? Do We can't know everything about this God. Um, we can't put God in our little box um, tied up with a bow. Uh, and I, so I think that that's that's the hardest to do. But I know that there are a lot of really um, smart and capable and creative leaders who are in these uncertain times um, helping their congregations to embrace that kind of uncertainty. I think that's right. And I one of the challenges there. It is, it takes a talented leader. That's like really important, but it also takes a, a community being willing to examine what it thinks a leader is and how it thinks that a leader should actually lead. And so there is sort of the, the kind of dance, I think, the, the challenging dance that has to happen is uh, on the one hand, you have to be a great or, you know, be able to kind of invite this kind of people on this sort of journey, but then they have to be able to give, you know, enter in, into the risk of it, right? Because this is really all about going on a, on a journey of risk. And I think um, you know, that that's a, a theme that comes up pretty frequently in, in the innovation literature is just that risk is really important, you know, and, and, and as a community, a person has to be able to, to engage in that kind of stuff. But what, I guess one of the advantages of risk within a faith context is that you are never taking it alone, right? At least Theologically, that's the claim, exactly. right? We're always taking it in the hand, you know, with another. Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, no, I'm just affirming. Yes, absolutely. I think that's so important. And, you know, it's at that moment at the Watergate in uh, Nehemiah when the uh, Torah is read for the first time, you know, and everybody's gathered there, the men and the women and everyone who could understand Um uh, they're all together, and um, the Levites and other elders, I think they circulate among the people to help the people understand, which um, from the very first reading of the Torah, there is no sort of common consensus or obvious meaning, <laughs> right, from that very moment uh, in that story um, that two things uh, 
it's not just sort of, boom, you read it and then you instantly understand it. Scripture has always, always, always required interpretation and interpretation is always, always, always a dynamic process. But number two, that that was that reading happened in community, um, that that people were gathered together. And I think that that, um, the, you know, there are there are lots of different things we can say about that 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 image that's going on there um, from that um, Nehemiah passage. But I think the the two two very positive things I take from it are scripture was never self-explanatory. And scripture has, from its beginning, uh, been engaged in community and not in sort of single silos. I really appreciated the way that you used that text as a, uh, I don't know, as a, as a kind of a description of where you see many churches at today. It, because, it, you know, in that story, there's, there's the reading of scripture, right? There's the dedication or there's the kind of a gathering of the community. And, but there's also all this pain and and joy that are sort of all mixed in together. And I, I think you're right that that is a kind of uh, snapshot image, a metaphor, whatever language you want to use for where many churches are at today. Yeah, the sound of the people crying could not be distinguished from the sound of the, or sound of the people shouting could not be distinguished from the sound of the people weeping. Yeah, I, I think that is like the central image for the church today the shouting for joy and the weeping, and you can't distinguish them. Yeah, that's well put. You know, Cameron, we're right at the end of our time together. So I just wonder, are there any kind of questions or topics that we haven't had a chance to cover, but that you'd like to lift up here in the last few minutes? I guess um, one thing I would like to mention is that, um, you know, the book is, is aimed at seminary students and it's kind of secondary readership would be um, clergy and interested lay people. Um, but it, it does sort of point to some um, complicated, I suppose, academic ideas. And I don't want to give the impression that one has to go get a Master of Divinity or a PhD in Old Testament to read the Bible faithfully in the church, that we are all equipped um, by the Holy Spirit to read Scripture. This is a kind of cornerstone of uh, the Protestant Reformation, but I think also just um, of my own sort of approach to Scripture that um, it this critical biblical scholarship um, is not... Uh, something that you have to get first in order to read the Bible well and faithfully. Rather, um, uh, we should be able to um, embrace the insights that that critical biblical scholarship gives us as a, a, a more significant part of our faith life than I think that we have so far or that many people have so far but that it's not it's uh it's, it's very much not that people somebody's got um the the sort of decoder ring you know somebody with a phd's got the decoder ring that's gonna tell you how to get to the right answer in scripture it's not that at all but rather how do those who have had the chance to engage these ideas um in seminary for instance help bring those insights in new and creative ways into into the church to enrich and to open and expand um, our possibilities for interpretation. And I will also just say that you don't have to have any fancy or special degrees to read your book either, Cameron, because it's written so very well. Oh. <laughs> and so, no, it really, truly is. Um, and, and it is the, I would echo that it is the kind of book that I think uh, that a layperson could easily pick up, um, that uh, a, a pastor could easily pick up and use for a congregational study or just for his or her own you know, uh, uh, enrichment. And so please uh, go out and check the book, The Old Testament for a Complex World. And uh, Dr. Cameron Howard, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me.
Thank you for listening to the Gospel Beautiful podcast. I really hope that you benefited from the conversation. If you did, make sure to leave a five-star review. Also make sure that you're subscribed so that you can receive updates whenever new episodes drop. Thank you very much.